Well, if you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9. We are coming to the end of this all-important and yet very difficult chapter as we make our way through the greatest letter ever written. And we are looking this morning at Romans 9, 22 to the end of the chapter, verse 33. Romans 9, 22 to 33. We've already touched on 22 and 23, and so we're really going to pick up in 24 in our exposition, but for the sake of context, we'll start in verse 22, read to verse 33. You'll find that on page 945 if you're using the church Bible, and as usual, I know that you're going to find it helpful to have a copy of scripture open and to be reading carefully along with me. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer, asking for his blessing on the preaching and hearing and receiving and keeping of his word this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for every word that you have breathed out. We know that all scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that you might make us equip and complete for every good work in Christ Jesus. And our God, above all the needs that we have, we need to hear of Christ and his grace and his mercy and to be drawn to him. We pray that you would use this portion of scripture to draw everyone in this room to the throne of grace, to our knees, to cry out for the Lord Jesus, to cry out for the one who gives us life and light and righteousness and peace. We pray, our God, that you would be honored in what is said. We pray that you would help us to fix our attention on your word this morning. We pray that you would help us to keep it with faith and love in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 9, beginning in verse 22. Paul, remember, has been setting out that doctrine of God's sovereignty over election and reprobation, that God is sovereign over all. He is answering the question, has God ceased to be faithful to his promises? Has God's covenant promises to Israel failed? And Paul's already said, no, those promises were always to an Israel within an Israel. It was to Isaac, not Ishmael. It was to Jacob, not Esau. It was to Moses, not Pharaoh. And then we saw last week the purposes God wants to show his attributes. Why does God do that? God wants to show his wrath on vessels of wrath. God wants to show his grace and mercy on vessels of mercy. And so Paul now, taking up this further objection that someone might object, asks the question, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says to Hosea, they were not my people. Those who were not my people, I will call my people and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law 
that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This ends the reading of God's word to us this morning. Well, I couldn't think of an adequate illustration to highlight this, so I'm going to give you a very inadequate illustration this morning at the outset of this sermon. Uh, A number of years ago, Anna and I were um, in a store, and we were going through the checkout line, and as I'm checking out, I looked down, and there was a $20 bill, and I was like, hey, a $20 bill. And I picked it up, and I thought, I better ask whose it is. There was somebody going out of the store, and so I yelled to the person going out of the store, hey, did you lose any money? And the person checked their pockets and said no. And the girl behind me said, I think I lost money. And I said, how much money did you lose? Gripping my $20 bill very tightly and hiding it in my hand. And she said, $5. I said, no, $20. (laughs) And I kept the $20. And she said, oh, I should have got that. And she was angry. And I thought, that was really weird. That was a very weird experience. I was not seeking for the $20. I really didn't care if I had the $20 in one sense. And the girl behind me was angry that she didn't find the $20. Now, why do I tell you that? Because Paul is going to tell us in this passage that God's sovereign purposes in election mean that certain Jews and certain Gentiles are going to be saved, that there's a remnant according to grace, And that at the end of the day, those who didn't seek after righteousness are going to get that righteousness in Jesus. And those who were seeking after it by works get nothing. That's going to be Paul's big argument in this passage. That the the purpose of God's election coming down is going to come down and say, okay, well then who does God elect? And Paul's going to say he elects some Jews and he elects some Gentiles. And then he's going to ask the question, why do some believe and why don't some believe? And he's going to say... Some weren't even seeking for it, and yet they got it, and others were seeking for it, and they don't get it. And so we're going to look at just these two things this morning. First, we're going to see why God, who God has prepared his vessels of mercy beforehand for glory, and secondly, how do the vessels of mercy come to receive that mercy? Who does God prepare his vessels of mercy, and how do they come to receive it? Well, notice that Paul has already gone through the very difficult part of this chapter, and now in verse 22, he tells us that he wants to make his attributes known. That's, by the way, that's the big answer that maybe nobody else will tell you. Why did God ordain the fall? Because he wants to show off his attributes. Because if you're God, you're going to do the same thing. You think you're God anyway, and you want people to see how great you are. That's what we do. We want everybody to know who we are, and we're not even God. So why would not that being of which there is none greater not want everybody to know who he is and all his perfections? John Piper, I think, puts it so helpfully. God would cease to be God if he didn't do that. He would would give his glory to another and worship an idol. If he turned to men and he said, oh, you do what you want, God would be giving up his godness and he would be giving glory to a creature. So God wants to show off his perfect attributes. That's the best answer you'll ever get from Jonathan Edwards, not me. Best answer you'll ever get. God wants, from Paul, actually, in verse 22 and 23, God wants to show off his attributes. What if God 
wanting to make his wrath known, endured with much long-suffering vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction. But notice verse 23, Paul is getting to the mercy in order to make known the riches of his mercy for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And then the question is, well, who are these vessels of mercy? Who are they? And Paul tells us, notice the end of verse 23, uh, verse 24, even us whom he called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, for you and I sitting here in 2014 in Richmond Hill, Georgia, with all of American history, all of uh, English history and Cromwellian history and the Puritans and everything else post the Reformation, and we're seeing the gospel just spread and people hear the gospel and theological truth being proclaimed and people in every corner of the world being saved, this doesn't seem like a big deal. But if you could transport yourself back to Paul's day, when the only people that God had mercy on were Jews in the Old Covenant, except for Nineveh and and Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, and a few other notable examples, when God only had mercy on the covenant people, this is a huge deal. And it's a huge deal in light of Jews who believe that they deserve the mercy of God. That's who Paul's writing to. People who thought we're better than these people. We're not like these people. We don't do what these people do. Remember the Pharisee. Thank you, God, that I'm not like this guy or this guy. I don't do that. I'm not like this sexually immoral person. I'm not like this tax collector. I thank you, God, that you've made me different. That was the Jewish mindset by and large. And Paul is speaking into that. And it's an enormous thing for Paul to say that God does have mercy on some Israelites, but that he also has mercy on Gentiles. It's an enormous thing. Now, I used to hate riddles. I think I've told some of you this. And when I was like 21 years old, I worked at this restaurant, and this guy would always come in and annoy me with riddles. And we didn't have the internet for me to cheat and get the answer, so it actually drove me crazy. And he would come in, and he would give me a riddle. He'd give me like three riddles in a row and let me go for like two weeks trying to figure them out. And um, I think I've shared one with you. Uh, One of the ones I remember distinctly, he said, um, the guy who makes it doesn't make it for himself, and he who buys it doesn't buy it for himself, and he who uses it doesn't know he's using it. I said that to somebody in here last year, and they were like, oh, that's easy, a coffin. I was like, easy? I spent like two weeks on that. Um, The gospel going to Jews and Gentiles and God electing Jews and Gentiles and God raising up a new Israel in Christ and God doing everything that he is doing now in the new covenant was the riddle of riddles of the ages. It was the mystery of mysteries. It was the unfolding of God's mystery. God revealed a little bit in the Old Testament they should have known. Notice that Paul is going to quote Hosea. Notice verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea. So Paul goes back to the scriptures and he says, look, it's here and it's here and it's here and it's here and here in the prophets. These are the prophets of Israel. And he's saying they should have known. God said in Hosea, I'm going to call a people my people who were not my people. That means I'm going to save a people who are not Israelites. That's what he's saying. I'm going to call a people, that's you and me. I'm going to call people not my people who were my, who were not, I'm going to call people my people who were not my people. I'm going to call people beloved who I didn't love. Remember, God's already told us he loved Jacob, not Esau. Loved Jacob, hated Esau. He had a covenantal love for Israel, but not for the nations. 
Now in the new covenant, God's saying through Hosea, I'm going to call a people to myself who are not my people, and I'm going to call people beloved who are not beloved. I remember reading that as a young Christian being overwhelmed with a sense of undeservedness and awe that I was not deserving in any sense whatsoever, not just by nature, but by covenant nurture. And yet God said, I'm going to call you my people who are not my people. I'm going to call you beloved who are not beloved. And so Paul essentially is saying to those Jews who would object that this was always God's plan. Psalm 117, let the nations praise the Lord. It's right there in the Psalter. It it goes beyond the borders. This was God's promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. God never promised Abraham he would be the father of one nation, ever. It's the biggest misconception people have of the Abrahamic covenant. He never said, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. He said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and all the nations of the world are going to be blessed in you. And he means in Jesus Christ. That was God's plan from the beginning. And so now as everything's unfolding and most of Israel's rejecting the Redeemer, they're rejecting the message of Christ, they're rejecting the cross, they're rejecting their need for forgiveness, Paul is saying, who then is going to be the vessels of mercy? Well, he's going to say some of them are. He'll he'll tell us in chapter 11, verse 5. Turn over there. It's part of this section in 9 to 11. Notice 11.5. Paul will say, so too at this present time, he's writing in the first century, so too at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And Paul is including himself. He, understood that he understands that somehow he was part of the remnant of Israel. God has said, I'm going to save Jew and Gentile. But now Paul goes back and in, in chapter 9, after quoting Hosea about the Gentiles, he then quotes about the remnant. Notice verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Now, why is it important that Paul is quoting Isaiah at this point? Because somebody could say, Paul, you're preaching this new gospel. You've got this new order of things. You've made this new religion up. And Paul is essentially saying, let me go back to your most beloved prophet and tell you that he said the exact same thing as I'm telling you. Isaiah the prophet was probably the most loved prophet in Israel's history. And he said that Isaiah said to Israel in the 7th century, in the 8th century, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet the remnant will be saved. God was always telling Israel, it is only a remnant to whom I am going to be merciful. It is only a remnant who are going to receive this grace. It is only a remnant. It's always a small number. Remember that story when Elijah is fleeing from Ahab and he kind of gets a little spiritual pride and depression mixed together and he's like depressed and tired and he's like, oh Lord, I'm the only one. It's just me. The only one left. And God's like, nope. God doesn't say I have a whole nation full of people believing. He says I've got 7,000 more over here who are believing like you. So I've got a remnant. I've always got my people within my people. Remember, that's the big verse. Romans 9, 6. Not all Israel are of Israel, right? But the children of the promise, those who God has set apart. 
And, and here's the beauty, I, and I can't put this any clearer. If you spend time in Romans 9 and you unpack the Old Testament citations and you look at everything from Genesis to Exodus to Hosea to Isaiah, it is overwhelming that if you read your Bible, this is the overwhelming teaching, teaching of Scripture. The remnant principle is the overwhelming teaching of Scripture. It is on almost every page of the Bible. And so Paul's saying, listen, there is a new people that God is dealing with in Christ. He's the true Israel. God is raising up in the true Israel a new people, Jew and Gentile. This is what Paul will unpack in Ephesians when he'll say, we who were far off, that's us Gentiles, are now brought near to the covenant promises. We've been brought near. Paul will say in chapter 11, the Jews are broken off of the tree. Gentiles are grafted in. Jew and Gentile are grafted into a new Israel in Christ. That's Paul's whole argument here. It's not ethnic descent that gives you the right to the promises. It's not ethnic descent that gives you the privileges. Let me make an application for you if you feel like, okay, this would be really great if I lived in the first century and it's boring to me right now. A couple things. One, you don't deserve God's mercy as a Gentile. Israel deserved it even more than you do. God told Israel only a remnant, but now he's saying Gentiles are getting it. That's huge. That's enormous. They actually had a covenantal claim to it in one sense where we don't. There's a picture of this where Jesus is in, in the Gospels, a um, um, uh, woman comes to him, a Gentile woman, to asks, asks Jesus to heal her daughter. And Jesus seems harsh. He says, you know, it's not good to give the children's bread to the little dogs. He calls her a dog. That sounds harsh. It's not the Jesus a lot of people like, but that's the Jesus of Scripture. And he says, it's not good to give the children's bread to the little dogs. And the question is, what is he talking about? Well, the miracles that he came to do were first and foremost for Israel. He was first of all sent to the house of Israel. And then that woman in great faith says, but this would just be crumbs. It's not even crumbs for you to heal my daughter. And Jesus heals her daughter. So, so you have this thing at work through all of time and history. And even though we live in 2014, this is important for you today spiritually. Because if you're in Christ, it's because God has set you apart. God has decided, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will make you a vessel of mercy. And I will take some from the Jews. And I will take some from the Gentiles. And I will make a glorious church for myself. So... If you're in Christ, you're part of that. If you're in Christ, you're undeserving of that. Secondly, I think this breaks down for us in a very important way in our day, racism. Let me talk about this. We're in the South. It's the elephant in the room. It's kind of not becoming so much more, which I'm thankful for. This destroys racism because of people who thought that they were better ethnically didn't get it and they didn't get salvation, and people they despised got it. I'm just going to let that sink into whoever that needs to sink into. Because that needs to sink into some people. And other of you don't have that big of a problem with it. We're all from Adam. There's no such thing as Jewish blood. There's no such thing as white blood or black blood. There's no ethnic diversity that goes anywhere but back to Adam. So Paul has made that clear in chapter 3. Everybody's under sin. Chapter 5, everybody fell in Adam. Chapter 5, everybody needs the same second Adam. 
Everybody needs the same salvation. We have no right to think that we have some physical descent privilege that other people don't have. In fact, what this ought to do is stop every mouth, which was Paul's point in Romans 3.19, that every mouth may be stopped, that all the world will become guilty before God, that all men might cry out for redemption in Jesus Christ. You know what's interesting about this? Paul says in Romans 3.19 that the law comes in that every mouth would be stopped because men's mouths, our mouths, are full of objections and self-defenses. And what's interesting is that in Romans chapter 9, as he's unpacking this, Paul is asking these questions as if they're objections coming from the mouths of men who don't want them. Their mouths haven't been stopped. Well, what about this? Is God unjust? How can God do this? And Paul says in that one sweeping statement, who are you, O man, to reply to God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? And so Paul is going to the scriptures. He's pulling out the truths that a remnant is going to be saved. I'll say this also. It's, a, it's important for us pastorally as Christians to understand this. And experientially, Jesus said in um, several of his parables, many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few, a remnant, are chosen. What am I to do with that? Well, I'm not to say, well, I'm just so glad I'm in and they're out. And that's not, (laughs) you're to say, oh God, may I examine my heart to see if I'm in Jesus Christ, trusting him, knowing that I and part of that number. Your, that is to drive you to say, Lord Jesus, assure my heart that I'm in you. Assure my heart that I have saving faith in you. Don't let me be deceived that I'm just rocking along in the visible church with my kids. Just rocking our way to heaven. It's the worst thing in the world. Read the Old Testament. The covenant people who have the covenant promises, God is constantly saying, get a circumcised heart. Get a new heart. Get a regenerate heart. Make sure that you're in Jesus Christ. That's the point of this. Gratitude for the undeserved mercy. Flattening out of any distinction that we might think of who's deserving, who's not deserving of anything. And then driving us to Jesus. Well, secondly, Paul then gives us this picture of how the vessels of mercy come to receive the mercy. Now, this is amazing because if you're reading through Romans 9, it starts with Paul saying, my heart's desire for Israel is for my brethren. I have groaning and agony in my heart. I long for their salvation. My desire is for the gospel to reach them and them to believe the gospel. He's going to do that in chapter 10. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. He's going to pick back up. Beginning of chapter 9, beginning of chapter 10, he's going to say the same thing. I have groaning for Israel. My brethren, I long for them to be saved. Chapter 10, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. So Paul has a missionary heart. And yet in the middle of all that, he explains why they're not all saved. And then almost seamlessly, he brings it from the eternal decree of God and electing some to salvation and others passing over sovereignly. He brings it back down to earth and he explains how Jews and Gentiles are saved. So He moves from the eternal back to earth, back to time, and notice what he says. Notice what he says in verse 30. 
What shall we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based on works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's hard for you to miss the emphasis on the one who believes, the one who believes, the one who believes. The one who believes will not be put to shame. The Gentiles weren't seeking it, but they believed the gospel. They received the righteousness of God. The Jews were seeking it, but they were seeking it by their own works, and they did not attain to the righteousness that they thought they were seeking by the law. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone, Jesus Christ. And so now Paul is talking in the realm of human responsibility. You know, Charles Spurgeon had a uh, statement once. He said, one week I, I preach God's sovereignty over the salvation of sinners, and half the congregation hoists me on their shoulders and cheers for me. And the next week, I preach man's responsibility, and the other half of the congregation hoists me up on their shoulders, and they cheer for me. And Spurgeon says, but God's word teaches both of those things. It teaches them oftentimes side by side. It teaches them in all the tension that you might feel about that. I want to read to you something. Um, Gerhardus Voss says, that Paul now discusses both of these things in succession. The apostle has not made an attempt to reconcile these two with each other logically. He's just moved from God's electing mercy, not of him who works or because of anything that you do, to Gentiles who weren't seeking it got it, but they got it by faith. They got it because they believed in Christ. So Paul just moves seamlessly, and Voss says, Paul doesn't reconcile these two logically, nor may we make such an attempt but it is even more impermissible to bend and distort the contents of Romans 9 so that in one way or another it conforms to what follows. Both sides must remain next to each other, unreconciled for our thinking, but each in its full right. So, the scripture teaches both. We don't shy away from either. We embrace both. We believe both. We understand that behind my believing is God's sovereign, electing purposes and having mercy on me, but we understand that I had to believe the gospel. You have to believe the gospel. If you hear about Jesus, if you hear Christ Jesus was crucified for sinners, that there's no salvation apart from him, he who has the Son has the Father also, he who does not have the Son does not have the Father, he who does not have the Son does not have life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Whoever comes to me, I will raise up on the last day. Whoever believes on me will live because of me. And everything else that the scripture says, if you hear that, if you hear that God has made his son an offering for sin and you reject that and you are unwilling to believe, it will be your fault and you will be responsible for perishing because you will look square in the face of the source of God's mercy and righteousness and like the Jews of Paul's day will stumble over the stumbling stone. Last night I was reminded of Jeffrey Dahmer, who's one of the most notoriously wicked serial killers in American history. And Dahmer had grown up in a Christian home, quasi-Christian home, and had done horrendously wicked things at a young age. And a woman, um, I believe her name was Mary Mott, had written him in prison, sort of hesitantly, and she had shared the gospel with him. And she had sent him a Bible, and she started doing Bible studies with Dahmer in prison. And 
Then she had a pastor reach out to him and, and go over and start visiting with him. And Dahmer made, and I'm telling you my opinion, in my fallible and limited opinion, he made one of the clearest, most sincere professions of faith. He said, I, don't, I deserve everything that I'm getting. I deserve judgment. He even became a creationist. I'm not making this up. And then said evolution was part of the reason why he did what he did, because he thought we were just animals. So Jeffrey Dahmer, I believe, received mercy because he trusted in Jesus Christ. Now notice what Paul says. The last line of this section, verse 33. Whoever, so go ahead and plug in there. I want you to think about who you don't think should be saved right now. Like you think of somebody you think shouldn't be saved. I mean, you really don't like. You plug their name in there, and you tell me if that whoever is not broad enough for them. Whoever believes, whoever believes in Christ, in him, will not be put to shame. That means Jeffrey Dahmer, on Judgment Day, for all the wicked things he did, will not be put to shame. How? How could that? How? how? That's not right. He should pay for that. Well, he did pay. He had his head bashed in. He was, he was murdered in prison. He paid for that. He paid for what he did. And he deserves eternal judgment. But here's how. Here's how this works. God became man, and he took all the sin and guilt on himself, and he was put to shame at the cross. Jesus Christ was put to shame at the cross for every shameful thing every one of us has ever done. And that means that whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. I like here the old authorized version, the King James, whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. And the marvelous thing is that the Gentiles weren't seeking it. Notice verse 30, the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness. They, they were living in idolatry and wickedness. They were, they were sacrificing their children and having orgies all the time. And God's like, I'm going to send them the gospel, and some of them are going to be vessels of mercy, and they're going to believe the gospel. And then here we have Israel, who has the Torah, who has the whole history of Israel and all the law, and they're trying to keep the law for their standing before God. And God says they don't get it, and those who weren't seeking it do because those who weren't seeking it heard the gospel and believed. Where did Paul go week after week in the synagogue? He went to the synagogue week after week in the book of Acts. His heart was for Israel. He preached the gospel. And every time, what did they do? They drove him out of the synagogue. They drove him out of the city because it was a blow that Jesus Christ is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. I'm going to say this carefully this morning. If it bothers you to think that Jeffrey Dahmer's in heaven right now, Jesus may be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to you. If that bothers you to think that God could give him eternal life, then that betrays that either we don't understand our own sinfulness or we don't understand what happened at the cross and the grace of God and how people are declared righteous. You know, the woman, well, I'll tell you, Mother Teresa, whose name is synonymous with good works, spent her life ministering and the last 40 years of her life she wrote a testimony about this that she had an emptiness doubted that God existed you should read this type in the dark night of Mother Teresa's soul you can read it 
and numerous ministers, John MacArthur, J.I. Packer, talked to her about the gospel. And it was very evident that Mother Teresa was trusting, she was trusting in what she was doing. She was trusting in that. She had no peace. She came to, I believe it was J.I. Packer, on her deathbed, she called for him, and she said, I want to know that my sins are forgiven. Well, here's how you know. God put his son to shame so that if you believe in him, you'll never be put to shame. Jesus merited perfect righteousness so that if you believe in him, you are righteous in Christ. That's where assurance comes from. That's, that's, that's it. That's the big thing. The second you breathe your last breath, that's the only thing that's going to matter is what you did with that message. What I just said is the only thing that's going to matter the second God takes your breath. That's it. Jesus Christ provided full atonement for sins. He provided a perfect righteousness by what he did. And the only way you get that is by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. And Gentiles who didn't seek it got it. And Jews who didn't, who sought after good works, didn't get it. I want to read to you this quote as we close. John Calvin's beautiful quote. Calvin's very, not really quotable often, but here he is. And I wrote Kaboom right after this, just so you know how good it is. And immature I am. How they stumble at Christ who trust in their works. How they stumble at Christ who trust in their works. It is not difficult to understand. For except we own ourselves to be sinners, void and destitute of any righteousness of our own, we obscure the dignity of Christ, which consists in this, that to us all he is light, life, resurrection, righteousness, and healing. How is he all these things except that he illuminates the blind, restores the lost, quickens the dead, raises up those who are reduced to nothing, cleanses those who are full of filth, cures and heals those infected with diseases. Nay, when we claim for ourselves any righteousness, we in a manner contend with the power of Christ. For his office is no less to beat down all the pride of the flesh than to relieve and comfort those who labor and are weary under their burden. It's beautiful. So the question is, is Jesus Christ a precious life, righteousness, resurrection, healing, giving redeemer to you? Or is he a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to your pride and self-righteousness? All of us fall in one of those two categories. I'll say that as we close. There's only two camps. He's either the chief cornerstone, precious to you, or he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And only you can answer that question. And that's the biggest question and most important question you could ever ask yourself and answer honestly. And if you've come to Christ, and if you're trusting him, he is all of that for you. He is light and life and righteousness and healing. I was thinking about John 9 this week. And thinking about how the Gentiles, they weren't seeking after it, but they got it. And I was thinking about the blind man in John 9, and Jesus heals him. 
And the Pharisees then come to him and they're like, who made you better? What did he do? How did he hear you? Ah, tell us. And they interrogate the man. And he says, all I know is I was blind and now I see. I didn't do anything. He did everything. I was blind and now I see. That's what Paul's saying here. Those who were blind and in darkness got it and those who thought they saw and Jesus says to the Pharisees you think you see you think you have light but you're in darkness may God give us grace to examine our own hearts and to make sure that we're trusting only in the righteousness that is by faith in Jesus Christ let him who has ears to hear let him hear what the spirit says to the church this morning let's pray Father in heaven, we are so thankful for this part of your revelation, and we are thankful that you have said in the scriptures that whoever believes in your son will not be put to shame because you, Lord Jesus, were put to shame for us. We thank you that you were mocked and beaten, that you were scourged, that by your stripes we are healed, that you were crowned with the crown of thorns, that the sun hid its face from yourself when you hung on the cross. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you have made a full sacrifice for our sins and that you have provided a perfect righteousness imputed by faith. We thank you, our God, that though we were not seeking, yet you came out after us and you drew us with cords of love. And we pray that you would make every heart in this place long for your son and long to believe in him and long to say, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just in simple faith to cast ourselves upon his promises. Oh God, we pray that you would have mercy on us. We pray that you would make us a people who long to give you praise and thanksgiving for the grace that you have shown us, the undeserved grace we have in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.